0: This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network. Visit us at fmpods.com.
1: When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call them a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more
0: ways than one. Bob Dylan. There was a wicked messenger from Eli He Did Come, with a mind that multiplied the smallest matter. When questioned who it sent for him, he answered with his thumb for his tongue. It could not speak, but only flatter. This is pod Dylan. The show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, part of the FM podcast network. I'm your host of freewheeling, Rob Kelly, and joining us this week to talk about the wicked messenger from 1967's John Wesley Harding is fellow Bobcat, Aaron Callahan. Hi, Aaron.
1: Hi, Rob. How are you tonight? I am doing great. Thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk about the wicked messenger.
0: This is, you are the, I think maybe the first person that's ever put that on one of their lists to be on the show, uh, which All is right. kind of amazing, you know? Um, and it was, it was lovely meeting you at the world of Bob Dylan conference. Uh, that was just fantastic. And so I am so glad that we finally had a chance to do the show together.
1: Yeah. Me too. I appreciate that. I've been wanting to talk about bob about the wicked messenger since he did it on shadow kingdom so i'm Mm -hmm. surprised that you know since he brought it back after 12 years of not doing it that no one wanted to to talk about it but i'm glad i got to there you go uh
0: (laughs) so well of course i said we have to start at the beginning for you since you've been on the show before how'd you become a fan of bob in the first place
1: my stepdad is a relapsed or i guess recovering hippie (laughs) that's what i say recovering um he was on his way to Woodstock and um, forgot where he was going. Maybe that was <laughs> um, there. There are probably some intoxicants involved with that, but he forgot where he was going. Um, but so he he and my mom are an interesting pair. Uh, she she's the very straight edge. But I remember when I was 12, he handed me a book of Dylan's lyrics and he said, take this brother, may it serve you well. And
0: wow, it,
1: in his hippie way. Uh, and and he, he's just, a yeah, he's he's a great person um, and a great guide. And he, I'm, I know the music was on when I was a kid, but I really came to Dylan through language. And then I just devoured all of the lyrics. And the first time I saw Dylan was in 95 with the dead. And then after that, I just started seeing him. And my very good friend, when I moved to Houston, my Bob Dylan friend, um, Kerry Winscott, he was a deadhead. And he was a huge Dylan fan and he just gave me every single boot like he could. And (laughs) I, I fell in love and there was no, there was no turning back after that.
0: (laughs) Now, I mean, unlike a lot of Bob, even uh, relatively obsessed about Dylan fans, you've gone one better into, you know, you become like a informal Dylan scholar at this point, you write about him and you podcast about him. I mean, talk about that a little bit because that, as I well know, that takes another level of madness to go to that point of it.
1: I wrote my dissertation on Dylan. And so uh, I wrote on Dylan and the American voice. And um, even though Harry posted, Harry, Harry Hewitt posted on Twitter today that Bob himself considers himself postmodern, I kind of showed how Bob Dylan was the fragmentation of all American voices. And I pulled him back into sort of a modernist context. And um, so that's, I just, I remember, I think it was the July 17th, 1999 show in Camden. Uh, I was there with my friend Carrie and I thought I could write about this. And I don't know what it was, but there were just a, there were just a few things in the lyrics and I thought I could, I could definitely do this. And then when I went to grad school, I just immersed myself in it and I wrote on Dylan or my dissertation on Dylan. And then I took a long break. Um, And then when I met Nina Goss, Jim Salvucci, uh, who else was there? Um, Anne Marie, Mai. We were in France at a Dylan conference, and that was the first Dylan conference that I did after I wrote my dissertation in December 2018. Nina said we should go to World of Dylan, and we did a panel at World of Dylan, and it's just been steamrolling since then. <laughs> I've so, got the- go ahead.
0: Yeah, and so in '99, you're talking about like I mean, Bob was certainly legendary by that point, but was there right. any? Was there any pushback at all from from the powers that be that that was would be a subject for that kind of scholarly interest from from you?
1: Yes, yeah. When I first, it's a really good question. When I first said I wanted to write my dissertation on Dylan, I was told it was too trendy. And um, <laughs> in nineteen ninety
0: nine, Bob Dylan no, was too this trendy. Was
1: later, this was later. This was oh four oh five. I was doing wow. my PhD, and I was told it was too trendy um, in academia the first dissertation on Dylan was written in 71 in Berkeley and, or at Berkeley. And so it wasn't really a trend. I just think it was unpopular. And so I was refocused to start my dissertation on Faulkner and I love Faulkner, but I didn't want to write on Faulkner. And then some things happened and that advisor uh, unfortunately passed away. <laughs> and that opened up for me to go to um a different, professor and ask him to support my bid to write on dylan and i, I was approved and i was really happy about that there so was pushback
0: <laughs> yeah uh, i mean i i did not go to a proper college so can you explain a little bit what goes into writing a dissertation i never had to do anything like that
1: um lots of research lots of reading okay. um and so there was i was doing a lot with the new left and also you know the context of theoretical framework of modernism and linguistic theory because i was looking at language patterns in the lyrics and then uh, i went to st paul to do some research and it was when the government shut down in in minnesota so i got to i couldn't research so we got to drive up to hibbing which was lovely wow um, yeah and so it's it's really intensive it's labor intensive and you have to really like what you're writing about because you live with it for the entire time you're writing and I did. I love language and I love Dylan and Dylan's use of language. So it was, you know, it, it was an easy marriage of the things that I really wanted to write about and focus on.
0: Hmm. I would imagine that you have to be a natural writer to be able to do that, right? It's just because you have a bunch of ideas doesn't mean you can put them down in a way that's coherent or interesting or put your point across. I mean, so obviously you're enjoying the writing process, forgetting about what you're writing about. Obviously you love that, but just the act of writing itself—it's got to be something you're enjoying, because I would imagine reading a dissertation by someone who doesn't know how to write is pretty painful.
1: Yes, um, <laughs> I, I think so. Yeah, I, I I teach writing. I teach that's pretty much one of the major courses I teach is composition, comp one and two. And I tell my students, I would rather write a thousand words than speak one. And <laughs> I I think I am, <laughs> and I'm doing the podcast, but I am a natural writer, and I think that. Um, it's something that I love to do and I love to learn about. And so, and I love to hone the craft. And so writing the dissertation seemed like a natural outlet for that.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, are any of your students at all familiar with Bob Dylan in any way, or is he just out of their consciousness? Um,
1: you know, no, a lot of them don't know. And I tell them, don't worry, you'll know more about Bob Dylan than you ever wanted to know. (laughs) And I teach a, when I, I teach a lit and film course, and so I can teach, you know, I can teach some Bob Dylan, like I can teach No Direction Home and Don't Look Back, and I'm not there, and we look at narrative structure, and so I get to sneak it in every once in a while, um, <laughs> but they, I I had a student last semester tell me that um, Knocking on Heaven's Door was originally written by, gun, by, by Guns N' Roses. I said, it, nothing can be originally written, but it's it's, it's a Dylan song. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's That's so... <laughs> I've run into that. And it's so hard because when someone is catastrophically wrong like that, you want to correct them. But you also don't want to be that person who's like, well, I actually, you know,
1: so I can't, <laughs> I know. Like, you know, I just oh. like yeah, you just go, okay. And I'm trying to build trust in the classroom so I can't be condescending. So I'm just like. Well, they did a version of it. <laughs> okay. yeah. They
0: didn't do leave and Let Die" either. That's not theirs. so okay. Let's, yeah, all right. Well, okay, okay. yeah, yeah. I, I had to point out to somebody not that long ago that Adele did not write "To Make You make Feel, me me feel love. My Love." <laughs> I tried to do it as gently as possible, just kind of like, gonna... oh, just by the way, that's a, that's a. And they knew I'm a Dylan fan, so they knew it would be kind of you know relevant to my interest. Like, yeah, by the way, that's just a Bob Dylan's song.
1: I'm gonna <laughs> throw my sister under their bus right now. Her wedding anniversary was. Yesterday, and I went to I went home to New Jersey, and I said, "I never asked you what your wedding song was." She said, "Oh, it's this great Garth Brooks song," and I was like,
0: "Oh, here it comes!"
1: <laughs> I was like, "She said to make you feel my love," and I just <laughs> steeled myself. I said, "It's a Dylan song."
0: <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, now what was her reaction? Was she was that an eye roll, or was she like, "Oh, okay," you know,
1: kind of an eye roll? Okay, like, whatever. <laughs> Well, we like this version. Yeah. We like this version better.
0: Well, that's fine. That's all fine. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. So, okay. <laughs> so, now you mentioned seeing him live in what was it, 95, you said was the first time?
1: 95. Yeah. With the dead at Giant Stadium.
0: So, oh, well, that's a big show. I mean, you were you kind of familiar with what you were probably going to hear? Because, I mean, I asked this question a lot because, you know, like, unlike a lot of other major league artists, his show is not representative of what you think you're going to get typically with a major act like that. And you have to kind of be prepared for it or maybe not.
1: I was more prepared for Dylan than the dead show. And we actually, uh, my stepsister and I, we kind of fell into those tickets maybe an hour before the show started. Oh my goodness. Um, one of our friends couldn't use the tickets and asked if we wanted them and sure, why not? And so that was you know that was fortuitous but yeah i was um i think he did joey that night i have to look at the set list again but i'm sorry i know i know i, know. I, I listened to your show on joey and i think i, I, I giggled the whole way through
0: um, <laughs> it's got seven minutes could have been devoted
1: no, to any other the, song <laughs> that's not the show it was the madison square garden show um yeah, with, with Joni Mitchell when she opened for him at MSG, we were fifth row. That's where he did Joey. Joey. Okay, I think I was at yeah, that yeah. one too.
0: I think were I you really? There, yeah, I yeah. think I went to one of those at least. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm just kidding, Bob. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> so <laughs> all okay. the songs are brilliant. All Everyone the songs. Br- absolutely every single
1: one. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you know, it's the, well that's gonna actually that's gonna dovetail perfectly into what what we're here to talk about, the Wicked Messenger, because it's the weirdest thing. I, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago on Twitter where I said, I ranked the street legal songs, right? Oh, I saw that. Yeah. Right. From a lot of people saw that from from least favorite to favorite, right? I was not, I was not ranking them qualitatively. I was simply saying, these are my, this is my least favorite, my most favorite. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows I love street legal. It's one of my top five records. I go on and on about it. And yet people were like, when they found like the bottom two songs, they were like, why do you hate those songs? Like I don't hate those songs. They're just, I leak less favorite to me than the other ones. I don't know why people have this binary view of like, if it's less than something else, that means you hate it. Like, no, it's not. But the reason I'm bringing this up is because this song is my least favorite song on John Wesley Harden. Stop. Now I still, (laughs) I still like it. But it's my least favorite. I see. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I I will get into why it's my least favorite off the record. Let let me put the big fat asterisk on John Wesley Harding. But why did you want to talk about
1: it? All right. So I will admit it wasn't a song that was really in my consciousness as much as other songs before Shadow Kingdom. Shadow Kingdom brought it back for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was that interesting guitar riff arrangement mm-hmm. in it, but more so the fact that when, you know, that, that the guitarist steps in front of the camera and that awkward staging, and I just <laughs> found that so charming and hilarious. And so that piqued my, you know, in a sort of indirect way, piqued my interest in the song. And, you know, once I started focusing on it and reading more about it, i I wanted to talk about it, Laura Tenchard and I promised to get together and talk about it, and we just never did um part of that was circumstantial, but um yeah, there so I realized that how complex and confounding it is as a song, and so I just wanted to know more, and I wanted to talk to people about it and no, like you- few people want to talk about this song, and I don't understand why, <laughs> and so it's a sparse two minutes three mm-hmm. musicians, 18 lines, you know, mm-hmm. so it's just, it's so condensed, and it's weighted. And so I just, I, I find it fascinating. And so what I, when I was reading, you know, I'm, as I said, I'm writing a paper on this, too. Um, But when I was reading Dylan's 1968 Rolling Stone interview, he says, what I'm trying to do now is to not is not use too many words there's no line that you can stick your finger through there's no hole in any of the stanzas there's no blank fil- filler each line has something and so next to that I wrote I wrote BD Imagist, and you know here's where I'm going to be a bit nerdy for you but that's a reference to Hilda Doolittle the modernist poet the imagist poet that she signed her poetry her especially the sixth initial poems that she had published in Harriet Monroe's poetry magazine at Ezra Pound's insistence, H.D. Imagiste. And what they were doing was they were paring down poetry to use as few words as possible to just get to the essence of the thing. And I think maybe that's what Dylan is trying to do here because we have, you know, the previous albums and the lyrics where there are these rolling lines and they're just beautiful imagery, which I love. But I think he's trying to be an imagist in a way, and I know Pound would probably edit him down a little bit more, and <laughs> say he <laughs> needs fewer words. But that's neither here nor there. But he is, I think, trying to get to the essence of the things with an economy of words, and so there's a denseness to the song that I didn't appreciate before I started, you know, digging into it
0: I, lyrically. I mean this this song um, it's not it's not different from the other a lot of the other songs on the record where I really have never been able to figure out for myself again, it's always for just myself. What actually is happening in the song, right. you know, it's always just, it's half, you know, sort of, I don't want to say half developed ideas. Cause that sounds kind of like, um, um, it's like a pejorative and I don't mean it that way, but it's, it's sort of half references or just sort of oblique references to things. And you have to, you're just like, hmm what like what is happening in this song, and that again, that's like true of like watchtower or you know as I went out right. one morning, it's that kind of thing um have you been do you when you listen to it or do you derive some sort of idea from what what is happening in this song?
1: I think this is where Dylan's a high modernist. You have to think about it, you have to read and you have to figure it out. It's like if he were t s Elliot, this would have. 40 pages of footnotes like the Wolf lab, because it's it. it there. I mean, I told you, I have five pages of notes, and that doesn't even begin to cover it. <laughs> and so there is a quote I found in my travels, and I'm not sure if it was for this or some other research, but Scott Myers to 2016 article after Dylan's awarded the Nobel Prize, he paraphrases Richie Havens from 1979. And this is how I approach the wicked messenger. So the paraphrase, Richie Haven says, I believe that at any given moment somebody somewhere is singing a Bob Dylan song. Coffeehouse, Street Corner, Subway Station, Nightclub. Dylan's music is a continuous thread which binds all humanity together. We may not understand what his songs mean, but we know them to be true. And I'm like, like I can I can get behind that and say, All right, this is there are so many different approaches. And I have Two to the Wicked Messenger. One's the biographical approach, which seems to be the popular one. Mm-hmm. That Dylan is the Wicked Messenger, and we have a lot of folks. Even Grail Marcus calls him a prophet, an Invisible Republic, Mom, Marchese, uh Paul Williams, Andy Gill, many others. Gill writes, "Of course, it, he's the Wicked Messenger." And I and Marchese says the Wicked Messenger is the artist, the prophet, the prophet, the protest singer. So it's Dylan. For me, I like, I, I appreciate the biographical view because I think that it works because we can look at him, especially when we think of the song being written in the past tense. There was a wicked messenger and he's trying to move away from that identity. Uh, so I, I get what those folks are doing. Uh, I prefer. A different approach and so there's that religious or theological approach and we know <laughs> that he's re. and this speaks to the the biographical approach too there's that as well we all know proverbs thirteen seventeen, a wicked messenger fell into mischief but a faithful ambassador is health which i love because maybe there's a wink and a nod to the motorcycle accident there since this is the first thing he's really recording in the studio after that but Beyond that, so Michael Kramer has an essay on counterculture in the world of Dylan book that Sean Latham edited. And there's a section, nothing is revealed. So maybe that fits with how you feel about it. But um it's the making of John Wesley Harding. And he refers to Betty Zimmerman's quote that everyone quotes or cites about the big Bible on the, the, big Bible, the pedestal. Yeah. yeah, in the middle of the house. And he has all these books, but that seems to be central. Um And then Kramer also notes that in the notebooks, which he spent extensive time with, it, those are filled with quotes from Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. And so that sort of led me to Ecclesiastes. And I want to preface this by I am not a biblical scholar in any way, shape or form. I'm going on what I read, what I'm still reading and what I will read in the future. And um, a colleague of mine, Seleucian and Joseph, is going to help me out with some of the stuff for the paper. But. We also so we know that, and then Rob Virginio, brilliant Dylan scholar, and he's writing what will just be a fantastic book on John Wesley Harding. Uh, wow, one of the cha- cool! Yeah, yeah. One of the chapters he presented um, on time um, and concepts of time, and um, trying to think. So, and with with Nina Goss and Anne Marie Mai on their panel <clears throat> Saturday morning in Tulsa. And so he just spent after Tulsa, he spent about a week with the notebooks. And he said that um, I'm going to quote him. So there's a reference to Proverbs 2 uh, 13, a tailbearer revealeth secrets, but he that is faithful, a faithful spirit concealeth the matter, basically saying that maybe this is why the wicked messenger is so quiet or can't speak, because he's faithful. Um, and then Seth Ro- Rogovoy has some stuff to say about that in his book. So he also shared that on a page in a legal pad from 1967, we find, um, the introduction to the character of the Wicked Messenger, and he speaks in the first person on those pages and for those four lines. Hmm. Um, and he- Dylan says that he's the one everyone knows, but wants to give, quote, his side of the story. And so, Rob made a parenthetical comment that he finds the shift from first person to third person fascinating. And I agree because that fits with my reading of of the wicked messenger in relation to false prophet. And so we think about him reading Ecclesiastes. And as I said, I'm not a, bi- a Bible scholar, but there's a first person voice in Ecclesiastes that goes from chapter chapter one, verse 12 through chapter 12, verse eight on either side of that, there's a third person voice. And some scholars believe that the third person voice is a separate person. And some believe that it's the same person speaking in the third person. And so if you think it's the same person speaking of himself in the third person, then Dylan as the wicked messenger makes sense. But if you think it's a separate person, then that fits with how I look at this, is that Dylan at 26 years old is looking at this as more metaphorically um, as the way that poets or messengers or prophets are received and it's really to me that's a that's an interesting view of it and I know you're saying there are half thoughts and whatnot I'm getting there I'm getting there <laughs> do you have questions because I feel like I'm just kind of uh eating all the tape right now
0: no no yeah. not at all oh, no okay. this is fascinating I, I, okay. I again for for a song that I've always just like I said just like little bits and pieces have jumped out of right. me of like oh, okay that's what that, But I've never been able to make it a cohesive whole. I'm fascinated at this. Because as you said, the, the the comment that Andy Gill made where he says, of course, it's dot, dot, dot. I, I yeah. liked Andy Gill's book a lot, but I always feel like right. when you're talking about any Dylan song, if you're saying, it's of course this, you're setting yourself up for failure. <laughs> because it's not of course a lot of times, I, you know? It's not, it can't be that because it's never of course when you're talking about Bob.
1: I'm reluctant to say anything with certainty. like exactly. It it suggests this, you know? Yeah. This, yeah. Um, so the single voice it means the preacher is speaking of himself in the third person, and then there there is that second person addressed with a thou and whatnot, and so he's talking to you and sharing his wisdom. And there it fits the biographical reading because especially the shift where he says I am the preacher. So he's talking introducing himself, and then that shift in line twelve, um, book chapter one, where he says I'm the preacher, but. I kind of think that it is the separation because there's a lot of separation in the lyrics where we see um the use of the past tense and if Dylan's singing about himself in the third person he's distancing himself from that former self as I said he there was a wicked messenger that person doesn't exist in the same way and so we see you know if it is Dylan talking about himself then he's sort of trying to forge a new path and maybe not complete reinvention, um, but maybe just some sort of artistic development. And that kind of goes in line with what Grail Marcus says in Mystery Train, where he says the artist has to be in, you know, in a place where he's not affirming the audience, but constantly creating because if he stops creating, then, you know, he becomes stagnant. He'll only affirm the audience and so on and so forth. But I feel like he is sort of reconciling the role of poets and messengers and Oliver Traeger in Keys to the Rain agrees with this and I felt validated. And maybe I agree with him because he wrote it first, but I'm like, as I was reading Ecclesiastes and the notes on Ecclesiastes, I'm like, I really think he's talking about poets in general. And then I went to the secondary sources and I was like, all right, Oliver Traeger, thanks for the, th- thanks for agreeing <laughs> validating my thoughts. So he refers to Antigone. In which there's there's the quote, none love the messenger who brings bad news. And King Henry the the fourth part two, the first bringer of unwelcome news hath but a losing office. And I think of Tiresias from Greek mythology. He's the blind seer who can only tell the truth, and he's often shunned or exiled for doing so, or the person in Plato's allegory of the cave who breaks free of the chains and sees the greater truth and people ridicule him. And so I kind of feel like that's what's going on here is that Dylan is speaking metaphorically. It's also the reason why I don't think the messenger is wicked in an evil sense. I know that some people look at his feet burning as he's been to hell, but thanks to Seth Rogavoy, I understand that a little bit better. Um, <clears throat> but he, um, yeah, I think that he's just, they don't understand his wisdom or his knowledge or the message, or they don't want to receive it. And so they label him as wicked, as what he's saying is wicked because they, they aren't prepared for it.
0: That's interesting the the, the reference you made to the, the souls of my feet, I swear they're burning, which is in some people's idea of like a reference to hell. I never took it that way. I always took it as it's the wicked messenger has been traveling for yeah, like- thousands and thousands of miles and he's tied, you know, the, the souls of his feet are burning simply because he's been walking for song. That's what, that's always how I, I took that line in particular. And out of kind of nowhere, it reminds me of the thing that supposedly he said to I think is Maria Muldaur right after the um Newport Folk Festival where he got booed, of course, where she tried to dance with him or something, and he said, "Maria, I can't, my hands are on fire." Yeah, and she thought that was just like, "Whoa, what a cool thing to say!" <laughs> and now <so> it reminded <laughs> me of that. But that's yeah. that's interesting. I always took that line specifically as someone who's been traveling and trying to dispense wisdom and is being referred is being thought of as the wicked messenger. The 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 narrator of the song is saying the person i'm talking about is the wicked messenger. I don't think they're the wicked messenger but they're being perceived right. as the wicked messenger.
1: Right, right. And that's that's the that's the interpretation that i i subscribe to. I think that he is not wicked, he or evil. He is someone who's perceived as such because of the message. Mm. All right. Good. We're in the same. But, all right. So <laughs> what when... <laughs> we agree. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love when people agree with me, <laughs> especially in Dylan, because there's no certainty. Um, but yeah. And so that, that thing that the, about his feet there's a bit that Seth talks Seth Rogovoy talks about Rogovi I should say is that um but he cites the book of prophets or from the book of prophets in which ezekiel recounts a vision of angels the soles of their feet their appearance like fiery coals burning like torches and so in this case there's an equation to an angel someone you know a prophet and someone who has sort of heavenly wisdom and not someone who's wicked or evil so i kind of dug that But yeah so i The idea of Tiresias, and then there's the the idea of Moses. This also comes from Seth, so thank you for this, because my knowledge of of the Old Testament is a little bit shaky, but I did my reading, I did my research. Um, A figure who's tongue-tied, imperative speech, but um, also knows better than to utter God's name. And so when he's asked who calls for him, he just uses his thumb, and I'm like, I I never know what direction the thumb is going that Mm way. Is it going towards himself? Is it going up to God? And so it's an interesting thing, but he says that because he doesn't dare utter God's name, he does um, thumbs up, which I thought was an interesting interpretation. So he's also an outsider. There's more separation that he's not, there's an assembly hall. And you know, if we want to get really <clears throat> deep in the weeds with a biog- biographical interpretation, Dylan has separated himself and, I mean, not from, but he separated himself from his former self by going up to Woodstock, in essence, and so, and then even by going to Nashville to record, and so he's outside. But he, there seems to be some agency, and he made his bed. It's not that his bed was made for him; he wasn't told to stay there. It's like he's behind the assembly hall, so he's outside of the congregation of people. You know, he's separated, and that separation is probably because he has the wisdom, and they don't really want to hear what he has to say. Um, so I found that interesting to say the least. He's scrutinized his comings and goings are monitored, you know, so they're watching what he's doing and interested in what he's doing, and you can look at that biographically' this, Dylan is probably the most scrutinized person in in the world or one of them at this point, hmm. but also just you know that they're really interested in what he's doing because they are seeking that salvation and I find that like the especially with the last verse that people are looking for salvation. And we like there the last verse gives us those interesting shifts in time. It's autumn with the leaves changing. Then we have the parting of the Red Sea, people looking for the salvation, the good news. And we can interpret that as the good news of Jesus coming, the fulfillment of the prophecy after the fall. And they're desperate to hear how they're going to be saved. But if he's not going to tell them the good news, they don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear what he has to say. Right. Yeah. And so I find that interesting um that you know, I subscribe to that reading, you know, where he's talking about poets, artists, people with wisdom. Um, and it seems like humans are in this continuous pattern throughout history. And I feel like that's symbolized by Charlie McCoy's descending and repeating base baseline, that we're just constantly going through this loop of like, here's a wise person who's trying to show us some sort of wisdom. And we shun them. And even Jesus Christ, who is the good news, if you are, you know, or a prophet, depending on what you subscribe to, if you're Christian, then he is the Messiah. If not, then he's a prophet. Um, He is arrested and, you know, and and crucified. And so even that good news is treated because folks don't necessarily like what he's saying. That person, that entity is also condemned um, to death. So I find that, you know, just, he's I feel like there's a there's a lot going on here (laughs) that that the 18 lines really condense for us and when you start looking at the source material you're like oh that might fit and someone will put in the comments that I'm absolutely wrong and I I accept (laughs) you know that I'm I'm fine with that I'd love to hear what other people have to say and so so where so I do see Dylan as being separate in his 26 year old self not having enough wisdom or maybe feeling he doesn't have enough wisdom in 1967 to write in the first person as the older wiser teacher which is who speaks the majority of the lines in ecclesiastes but this is where i see the parallel to false prophet because mm-hmm. in false prophet it is in first person and it's a longer song and so we see you know i see the parallels there and then there are the final lines of the good messenger And he was told that these few words, which opened up his heart, if you you cannot bring good news, don't bring any, they parallel the last lines of the first verse of false prophet that I know how it happened. I saw it begin. I opened my heart to the world and the world came in. Mm. And so I don't think that that's accidental, (laughs) maybe, Mm -hmm. Um, especially since he hadn't played we can argue about whether Shadow Kingdom's live, it is not, but he no, hasn't it's, it's not. It's but it's so highly curated that if the la he releases Rough and Rowdy Ways, and then a little over a year later he does Shadow Kingdom and he includes Wicked Messenger with hat which has similar lines in it. And you can I well you can I'm going to make that connection <laughs> between, you know, the elder, you know. The elder wise man and the younger, re- the younger wise man, third and first person, and whatnot. And so, I think that repetition invites that kind of almost. I'll say almost. There, I'm couching my terms again. Almost invites that interpretation. And there's a lot more to it, as I told you. But um, like with the fall of man, because maybe that's what he's talking about. I saw it begin, and so there's the good news and the the other connection. So there's a lot there that you can do with those two songs, but. I think that 18 lines of of the Wicked Messenger give us much more than I previously thought before I went on this journey after Shadow Kingdom.
0: Something that I had considered uh, when I saw because I, like you, uh I, f- I found Wicked Messenger to be an interesting inclusion on Shadow Kingdom because it's not a song that he has performed a whole lot since. And we'll talk about that, about the live versions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But I remember thinking, well, that's interesting. He's digging that one kind of out of the back catalog. Uh, you know, even among the other Shadow Kingdom songs, it's one of the even more obscure ones. And, you know, I don't we, we've, we've talked about this on the show a bunch of times where it's like, I don't think you need to know Bob Dylan's personal biography to get a meaning to these songs. Because I, I don't think he would expect that. I don't think mm-hmm. he goes through life thinking, oh, everyone's following my every move. So therefore, they, you know, I don't think he, you know, who the hell knows what he thinks, but obviously I think it's, he's bigger than that. That's just, it's just not about my personal life. That said, you know, I think about John Wesley Harding as a record, right? And right. it's, it's recorded two weeks after Woody Guthrie has died. Mm-hmm. And it is a complete and utter sonically 180 degree turn from everything that had been going on in music, including his own to that right. point. You know, it's, the anti, I mean, he, there's that famous quote where he said he felt that Sergeant Pepper was like a very indulgent album. You know, yep. I mean, this is, this is a thing where he's got, I mean, you look, if you just stack up, I mean, obviously at the time, nobody knew about the basement tapes, but I mean, you listen to like, if you're just a fan and you get blonde on blonde and then you get this and you're like, wait a minute. What the hell? How did he get from here to here? And it's, it's a conscious. I'm going this other i'm I'm heading this way when the rest of the musical culture is over here, and I helped form that. I helped us get it to there, but now I'm right. moving away, and I sometimes I think the wicked messenger is if not Woody Guthrie, the Woody Guthrie type, the kind of person that brings eternal truths to the people, and they are rejected for doing right. so, that sort of thing. and I wondered if Bob himself was feeling like he was like that in the summer of 1967 that he was feeling burnt out and feeling like okay i mean not that he wasn't regarded highly for what he was doing but his life had also sort of he really hit burnout at that point and was purposely holed up in woodstock and i sometimes like when i when i was listening to a bunch of the versions and prep for this record i sort of got that in my mind of like, okay i could sort of see him talking about woody guthrie as the wicked messenger and not that John Wesley Harding is a concept album as, as we come to think of it, because I don't think Bob really does those Agreed. at the same, at, at the same time, the, the liner notes seem to suggest, a, you know, a certain theme that he's going for. You could totally picture the wicked messenger being the guy who wanders into the town and drifters escape and gets put on trial. You could totally yes. see that, you know, now this song comes after that. So that, you know, defeats my idea of that he's like putting it together like that. But I always picture that of like, this is somebody who's wandering, he's walking thousands of miles and he's speaking these simple eternal truths and he is punished for it.
1: So there's I was going to say, of course, of course that's what it is. No. Um, (laughs) Of course. He can't say anything with such certainty. But it does seem that way. But And that's kind of what I was alluding to with that So in a very American sense, and he says, you know, about being an American artist, but isn't that what Woody Guthrie did? He traveled around and maybe not on his feet and walking, but he tried to spread these truths and he was accepted and rejected, you know, accepted some places, rejected others. And so it just, that makes sense. And it would make sense that that's either consciously, subconsciously on his mind, because it was such a huge part of his own artistic and musical development to where he was at that moment. And, you know, he then becomes, you know, the voice of a generation prophet as, you know, as Grail Marcus wrote and many others have written. And so he, I think he's, he is in a way rejecting that too, that, you know, he says himself, an artist has to be at a place, you know, never have to be at a place where you think you've arrived somewhere. And so he's already done blonde on blonde and now Mm. he's different. He's burnt out. And, to continue to challenge himself and to grow as an artist, he has to do something different. And was it, you know, if we didn't have the basement tapes, we wouldn't understand that link. And if we didn't have the source material that I'm grateful that we have in the archives, we wouldn't know that he was writing about Ecclesiastes or the different things that he was so focused on in this time. And just his mom saying, like, he's got this big Bible in his, <laughs> in you know, in, in the main room. It just seems that you know we are given these little gifts that help us interpret them. And I agree with you that I'm not trying to um, be negative about anyone's interpretation because I think we all have different um, parts of the Dylan puzzle that make for the whole picture. Sure. But I I think that the biographical interpretation isn't one that I find as interesting as the other ones that I kind of talked about here or what you're saying about, you know, his influences and maybe, you know, how he's navigating his own grief or loss over Woody Guthrie, his place in the world and how that manifests into his art. Not that it's necessarily about him, but you can see someone who is, you know settle down and have it starting to have a family and having a more you know bucolic life and less frenetic than he had you know even a year or 18 months before and that definitely is going to maybe change his perspective or change how he writes yeah I, I agree with you and are you saying you would have arranged John Wesley Harding different so we could see that progression <laughs> is that, I am I mean, not. In the Rob Kelly arrangement. I am not going to,
0: not (laughs) going to presume to tell Bob Dylan how to arrange his records. I've said a lot of dumb things on this show, but I'm not, I'm not that stupid. Uh, I'll keep that to myself of how I would arrange, uh, certain, uh, songs on, on different records. Uh, I will tell you though now, uh, speaking of saying dumb things, I will tell you now why this is my least favorite song on the record.
1: It's not going to be dumb. It will be great
0: okay thank you and it is and it is not lyrically i i you know i i think wicked messenger is just as lyrically interesting as all the other songs on this album and it fits together in a, this wonderfully you know kind of just a weirdly evocative way. i mean they like said grill marcus is all the old weird america to me like this is the old weird america is this, yes. this strange stuff and it's you know we've got kind of wicked people walking the land but they're getting punished But then the good people are sometimes cast aside. There's just so much going on. And again, it's such a wonderful contrast to how basic the songs are. You have three verses and out. You know, they're all two and a half minute songs. That's it. This is why
1: we need Robert Genio's book. And I can't (laughs) wait till it's out.
0: (laughs) There you go. But the reason this is my least favorite is simply, um, the music. Uh, I, I, I'm not a fan of that dun 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 dun. dun. Like that sound just isn't like, okay. It it just, mm. And then the harmonica is okay. so high pitched. It is to the point of, I find it to be almost ear splitting, like actually kind of painful to listen to. And I like it when Bob does those long harmonica, you know, and he, I, I like those, but this is the one time where I'm, I almost mm, wince a little because it is so sharp. And I, and, um, I had hoped that when the traveling through set, was coming out that there would be an alternate take of this because I thought, oh, maybe maybe he did a, a you know a slightly different version. I'd love to hear that. There isn't. I don't I've never been able to find any documentation as to whether there was ever any sort of finished alternate version. I would assume there wasn't because it's not on the set, but who knows if you know they're holding things back for other reasons or whatever. Um Perhaps. but because he did it on Shadow Kingdom, I, I actually like that version better. Like because it doesn't have that sound to it. He's got the guitar and it's not that dun dun. He's, he's, he's rejiggered it to where to me, sonically, it's just so much more pleasant to listen to. And I would say that to, I listened to about half a dozen live versions in Mm -hmm. prep for this and I liked all of them better than the one on John Wesley Harding because it just doesn't have that to me, like stabby in the ear kind of harmonica. Okay.
1: If I may. Okay. Maybe that stab you in the ear harmonica is the way that the people who are confronting the w- wicked messenger feel about his message. I and am so sure that Bob
0: meant it to sound like that. Yes.
1: Maybe, yes. maybe just like, I think that there's that, that loop of the, the repeating baseline, mm-hmm. the descending repeating baseline kind of, this is the loop we are in with every poet artist messenger who tries to speak the truth to us. We treat them in similar ways, and so humanity just kind of stays in that that pattern. Absolutely. Right, oh, so go go ahead. go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Absolutely. No, right I said say. I just
0: I find John Wesley Harding an incredibly pleasant album to listen to, despite mm-hmm. its its weird messaging and and slightly cryptic. You know, uh, two riders were approaching. The wind began to. Ha- I mean, there's a lot of really dark, cryptic stuff going on, but sonically, mm-hmm. it is to me one of the most. Pleasant. I hate to use that word because that just sounds so kind of like bland, but it is. I put it on the other, I bought it on vinyl a couple of weeks ago and I put it on in the morning and it was just such a wonderful, pleasant. I keep saying that word experience to listen to it sonically. And then I get to this and it just, it feels like nails on a chalkboard. And then we're back to the, to the more relaxed songs right after that. So it's just this one is just kind of, and then we're back down again. So
1: it's just, it just it
0: finagles my ears in a weird way.
1: Maybe it's supposed to be disruptive in the same way a wicked messenger is. (laughs) I'm just saying, just let it sink in and marinate, you know, at some point you're like, you know, that's an interesting point. Or maybe it's not. So of the that he's only performed this live one hundred and twenty five times.
0: Right. And not until 1987. So it sat for 20 years and he never did anything with it. Yeah.
1: And. I have to say, I love that he did it for the first time in my beloved little home state at Giant <laughs> Stadium <laughs> and with the Grateful Dead. Um, but I do, I, I love that performance. I don't know. Did you watch that performance? I
0: have not seen that one. No.
1: Okay. Um, it's, it's pretty good. And then, uh, he played it three times in 87. Once in nineteen ninety seven. And that's gotta be the sh- the show that Winston Watson is referring to in Ray paget's book, because I was in our know, read Ray's book recently, and I was like, Oh, the Wicked Messenger. He mentioned that. Oh, it. right. Yeah, that's right. I'm yeah, like, yeah, yeah, I'm like, wait a minute, but Dylan didn't like he really and then I had to go back and, and look at the times he did it. So there's that one show um in Lebanon, Indiana no, and Lebanon, Pennsylvania <laughs> in in ninety-seven that he plays it. And then hundred and twenty-one times between 2000 and 2009. Of the the ones, go ahead.
0: No, it's, oh, well, the the, one of the ones that I did watch is, uh, it was from 2001. I don't exactly know. It doesn't, it was on YouTube and it doesn't list where it was. One thing I, the one
1: with Larry Campbell and Charlie Sexton and Larry Keltner and Tony Garrison. Oh, God.
0: It features such a great intro of the band. Oh,
1: yes. It's so good.
0: Bob Dylan does so much to entertain us, and yet he has to do so little to entertain us because all he does is put a little bit of a topspin on the band intros. And you hear the crowd like (laughs) they're so excited to hear him say, Larry Kimball, like he's just he's doing it like a carnival barker. and People are just going nuts. It's so funny.
1: Because you remember when he didn't talk to us at all. And so yes! anything he did at any time he addresses us, we're just like, he talked to us. And like you know, in ninety-nine, when, <laughs> he, when he told that <laughs> I know such suckers, but in ninety-nine when he told that joke about love minus zero and his ex-wife, and we're like, oh, he told a joke. Oh. And then in in the woodlands, Texas, I was with my friend Carrie and our friend Jason Nodler And he duck walked on stage and we <laughs> lost our minds.
0: Meanwhile, normal and, people are like,
1: what? What is the big deal? Yeah, like, he introduced the mind? band. So what? Right. <laughs> I know. But and then the jokes in the in rough and rowdy ways, about like we about foggy bottom and like just the goofy things he was saying, like he looked at some Wikipedia page or yeah, something. This is the home of uh,
0: Rocky Balboa. All right, Bobby, You <laughs> right, know what yes. Philly is. Good. All right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: amazing though, and but again, I'm like, it's amazing. He's talking to us, right? He just has to put a little bit on there, and we'll talk about it for days. Absolutely, so, yeah.
0: That- so I, I love these live ones because they said he he he's got the guitar kind of crunching on that, and he just doesn't have. Some of them had harmonica, but it just doesn't. It just to me, they're all much more. I, I'm sorry, i keep using that word. They're just much more fun Pleasant. to listen to. Pleasant. <laughs> oh my Pleasant. god, it's terrible. Fun to listen to, and like I said, the the one on Shadow Kingdom. I love that, that version. I just think the way that the, the instrumentation of that mm-hmm. and the way he sings it is just, it gets to me, it has all the meaning of the lyrics put across, but just is, I just find like, Oh, okay. This is a version I can, I can get behind. And again, I thought it was really interesting that he digs that one up for, for Shadow Kingdom.
1: I, and that's why I think that there is, I mean, or at least I see a, some sort of connection between those two songs, but then there's the one. Um, May 12th, 2002. It's six minutes and 14 seconds in <laughs> London of a two minute song. I heard that and one. It-
0: I did hear that one. Yeah.
1: That's just amazing. And so Traeger writes, I, I, I found this so humorous, as the never-ending tour entered the third millennium, Dylan gave the wicked messenger new wings with an arrangement marked by a relentless pyrotechnically climactic guitar rift that made the song sound like it was born under a bad sign, <laughs> transforming it from a stark biblical ballad into a declamatory howl of rage set against a vehement blues stomp. I was like... <laughs> Okay, <laughs> but they're fun <laughs> and the musicians are tight and it just sounds good.
0: Yeah. Oh, when when he when he really cranks up the band and then uses a song like this with so much biblical imagery, it really does feel like a bolt of lightning again to borrow a phrase from Drifter's Escape, but it really does feel like a bolt of God's wrath coming down on the stage. Like it just has that feeling to it. It's just like, oh, again, you, you know, and again, it's a guy delivering these sort of essential truths of humanity, but with this you know, power guitar on the behind. And it. it's just, again, it's an amazing, Uh, it, you wouldn't think of it. Again, you listen to the record, you wouldn't think of it as like, Oh, this is really going to cook live. Right. And yet it really does. Cause everyone I listened to, I was like, God, every one of these is just terrific. You know, <laughs> like, it's just is really That's, powerful.
1: I know. I think I, I said to David, his office is right near mine upstairs in the house. And I said, I'm so happy right now because I was just listening to live version after live version. And it was just like each one was better than the next or as good as the one before it. And and it was mostly the 2000s. Obviously, there are the most shows that, you know, he played Wicked Messenger in the the 2000s, but it was just they were really good. So I love
0: I love that he does it once in the entirety of the 90s, which because I mean, he means he had to rehearse it. I mean, yes. he can't just pull. I mean, man, I don't know how these things work, but I mean, I would imagine they had to sit there and bang it out a little to have some sense of, all right, this is what we're gonna, how we're going to play it. And then for right. the entirety of a decade, he leaves it alone except for one it's night. Like, oh, let me do it one night. All right, now never again. Okay.
1: And to be at that show too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like the one show.
0: The one one time. That's it, and then we're done. So you you I know that there are a lot of covers yes of this i heard i listened to a couple I listened to the patty smith one i listened to the black keys uh right. were there ones that you particularly like you feel like they get to the heart of it in its own in their own way
1: i think that there. are so i read there are 20 covers and two very vari- variations i listened to 14 of them <laughs> <laughs> so i did um i find not that i don't know like the heart of my interpretation or the heart of the song. I mean, I think that every artist is going to look at it in a different way. And so that's what I find interesting is to see like Patti Smith to me sounds like how Patti Smith would do the wicked messenger. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a little heavy. It's her vocals add weight to it. You know, it doesn't sound like that, you know, biblical ballad <laughs> that, that Traeger writes about. Um, And so I, I don't love the faces version. Have you ever heard that?
0: I've not heard that one. No.
1: I think that's the first one in 1970, and I think it's the one that most people know or would know potentially. The music is interesting in that one. I just I don't love Rod Stewart's vocal. Okay. In it. It's a little too screechy for me. How you feel about the harmonica?
0: <laughs> okay. And, w- right. w-
1: Wicked, Wicked Messenger. Uh, Dylan's, the, the John Wesley Harding version, I feel about the vocal in the faces version. Marion Williams, the gospel singer, does a fantastic version did you listen to that one
0: no i didn't hear that one
1: oh, i was gonna say please tell me you did it's driven by piano and percussion
0: mm-hmm. it's
1: upbeat um it has sort of lighter happy feelings and it reminds me the piano i'll date myself now which is fine dr john or Doct- dr dr teeth the electric mayhem which are essentially <laughs> the same thing
0: <laughs> now i gotta go listen to that one okay yeah
1: I mean, it's you just, told me. It's, it's so good. And I thought, wow, th- that was probably my favorite. Um, there's, uh, Thea Gilmore's version. And I've heard that one. She- yeah. yeah. What did you think of that one?
0: I like that one a lot. I like Thea Gilmore, but I, li- I like that one quite a bit. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think it was it, really interesting because it stopped abruptly and I wasn't expecting that. It just ends where I'm expecting some sort of outro or something. There are just her ends. And I found that fascinating, uh, and interesting interpretation. And the Black Keys. Um What did you think of, what was your interpretation of the Black Keys? I, I wasn't
0: a huge fan of that one. I liked the Black Keys, but that didn't, didn't, didn't do a whole lot for me. It's just kind of yeah. like, mm, okay.
1: It sounds like the Black Keys. It sounds like just them doing the Black Keys in that period. Um Heavy reverb, produced vocals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it, it really, that didn't do much for me. But that Marion Williams version, that that got me, that stuck with me. I listened to it a few times. So you'll have to definitely listen to that one. Um there are some other ones that I didn't even put on my notes because I didn't love them. I mean, they're good, they're serviceable, but those were the ones that I had something at least interesting to say about. Patty Smith's, I think, was pretty pretty interesting. And I think I had an affinity toward it because of her relationship with Dylan, so I right. was predisposed to like it anyway. Just like, oh, she's gonna do justice to Dylan. So I kind of felt, you know, that stacked the deck for her a little bit. <laughs> but I just find it interesting when people, it's like seeing, seeing anyone live Um, if they just do the version that's on the album, I get bored, but mm-hmm. hearing people, how people cover things that I, w- I always find interesting because they're putting their spin on it. Like I said, the black keys just sounds like the black keys doing Dylan and you know, it's, it's okay, but it's nothing that, as you said, gets to the, gets to the heart of it. But I just love that, the sound, sonically, the, the Marion Williams version, just, it made me happy.
0: Hmm, wow, and I think, Oh, I'm really sorry yeah. I didn't hear that for Okay, cool. <laughs> I really got to check that out.
1: Go to what, Spotify.
0: <laughs> one other thing I do want to mention, and again, this is just my own like cockamamie theory and that I've mentioned, like, I think a lot of times Bob previews his next record with like the last song on the previous record. I feel like he does that sometimes. And so if you, if you go with that theory, which is isn't, doesn't always hold up and may just be completely nuts. This is the sort of last proper song of John Wesley Harding because the next two are much more, I think pointing towards Nashville skyline down along the cove and I'll be your baby tonight. And so this is, again, if you want to go down this road, this is the last Thing he is saying on John Wesley Harding as the record and I when I was listening to it over again and just over the course of this conversation I'm thinking this is Bob's warning to his audience of like treat your artists maybe not even just musicians treat your artists better you know treat them with more respect maybe not respect or fealty but just don't reject them because they're not giving you the thing that you don't want now of course Bob himself lived through that but right. as you said earlier, Bob Dylan's work is a lot more interesting if you than the, just saying, "Oh, it's just his biography." Well, that that makes it very small. And Bob Dillon Bob's work is not that; it's very, very big. But right. at the same time, the thing it he is kind of saying to everybody, "Hey, treat these people that are trying to tell you something well." And that's my closing message here on this particular record. Again, that might be a completely cockamamie theory, but it's that's one that rattles around in my head a little.
1: I think that's interesting though, because I mean, you know, the French love Bob and Bob loves the French. And one of the things that I love about the French is that their pantheon has artists and philosophers and, you know, and writers in it, like the Greeks have gods in their pantheon. And so I always, that's one of the things that makes me part Francophile is that they Mm -hmm. do celebrate the arts, you know, in, in a profound way. And so, you know, what you're saying is that Bob's kind of picking up a similar message is that, you know, don't don't treat these people harshly or, you know, don't ridicule or shun them because they don't give you what you want. Listen to what they're actually saying. Yeah. I think yeah. that that's, yeah, I, I think that's more profound than you thought it was. It's not <laughs> coming <cock-a-me-y> at all.
0: <laughs> I do. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very thank you very much. So Affirmation. okay well, uh, before we get to our, our exit questions, anything else from okay. your five pages of notes that you wanted to get to before we, before we I wrap think up here? that's
1: it. I mean, I got Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem. That's fantastic. And so, I, mean, <laughs> I feel like this is a win. That
0: is it. I never <laughs> would have thought that Dr. Teeth and Electric Mayhem would come into this conversation, but I'm glad that they have. You're so, welcome. uh, <laughs> I'd love to hear them cover a Dylan song. I never did that. Uh, that was so, amazing. <laughs> uh, Dylan, Dylan, the uh, animal. <laughs> so, uh, okay. Well, uh, Aaron, we again. I'm going to, as we're wrapping up here, I want to ask you the standard exit question, which again, you've been on, you haven't been on the show before. So I'll do the, the one I've been doing for, for all the new guests, which is if there's any recorded Thing of Bob's album, audiobook, anything that you could sit in on and just be a fly on the wall for you could sit and write your dissertation on as he's as he's recording it. What would that be?
1: Oh, good grief. That's a I mean, I knew I know this is one of your questions. And he knew it's, it was coming. I mean, come and on. it's still a curveball. Um <laughs> Good night. Um maybe maybe now that I'm so obsessed and it's in my head, the John Wesley Harding sessions, because there weren't that many people there. And, you know, I don't know, but that would definitely be one. Um, so any writing um, <laughs> sort of to be uh, flippant, I would like to hear the, the auto pen conversation.
0: <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. <laughs>
1: I don't mean that. Um, I, I'm going to be a, a Homer and just say like, Maybe the teatro sessions for time out of Mind would be kind of interesting just to see how that all all shook out and we have a lot of documentation on it, but just to kind of be there and see Dylan's process, especially now that we have fragments and to see how that stuff developed, it would be interesting to watch that live and just see him create as he's going. I mean I think that would be really really special.
0: All right absolutely so. said there's no no wrong answer, so no wrong answer.
1: Absolutely. And may I just, it, you can edit this out if you'd like to, but I'm going to tell you what I told you in Tulsa, that last fall was particularly difficult for me. And when I was not being grim and listening to Not Dark Yet, when I would drive <laughs> home, the hour that I had to drive home from my my taking care of my grandmother, I listened to your podcast. Um, And it was definitely a ray of a light. And it made me happy and it made me think, and it kind of got me away from the weight of, you know, the impending doom that we were, that we were kind of going towards toward the end of the year. So I appreciate you for that.
0: Well, thank you. That's a marvelous thing to uh, say. And I really appreciate that you came up to me at the Tulsa show and and you said that, because, you know, when you create these things, I'm just sitting here, as you can see, we've got our cameras on. You can see, I'm just sitting (laughs) in this humble little room here. Uh, You know, you're creating these things and you don't know, you know, who's, you know, some people are listening to them, but you don't know where they're going and, like Dylan's art, he can't appreciate. Uh, my God, I'm comparing myself to Bob Dylan. Oh, Lord. But, but, you know, when you're doing this, you can't, uh, you can't know what corner of the world someone is interpreting, what they're bringing to and what their life is like in this moment. Um, you know, and, uh, and so anytime, you know, again, I did, I did this because I like talking about Bob and I like talking to other people about Bob, but the idea that it would, do that for you is is a marvelous feeling and i will tell i will tell you we're not going to cut this out because you know what the hell but i will tell you that like when i came back from tulsa and i was telling my wife all the various stories you, what you told me was like the first thing i told her that was like the first story that. because you know uh i i very much appreciated that being told and she's uh v- very uh she had a kind of similar experiences in terms of like with mm-hmm. her grandparents and stuff. So I knew that would particularly resonate with her. But, um, you know, I, I also know that like, I spend a lot of time away from my family doing the show, the doors shut, <laughs> while they're, you know, and, right. and luckily, you know, my wife has never been anything but completely supportive. I mean, she's pushed me to do things I never would have done regarding the podcast in a way. And so I'm that's one of the reasons I married her, but I also do spend time away from her, doing mm-hmm. this thing. And so when I'm able to tell her something where, hey, this has meant something to this person and they were nice enough to tell me, that is wonderful. So thank you very much. Thank you for saying it in person and thank you for saying it here on the air. So-
1: well, thank you. And hey, don't say you're comparing yourself to Bob Dylan because art is art, whether a <laughs> six-year-old created it or a genius like Bob Dylan did. And some of my favorite art, which I have on my desk, was created by six and seven-year-olds. So... There you go. <laughs>
0: there you go. So, all right. Well, excellent. Well, where? Why don't you tell people where they can find you out on the internet?
1: Um, I do work for Dylan Taunts, and I have three interviews: from two from Tulsa and one uh, Rebecca Slayman, who's also a Jersey kid. Um, I know you just talked to Rebecca that um, mm-hmm. I have to edit, and those will be coming out on Dylan Taunts. Uh, Court Carney and I edited a book on Dylan Setlist that will be out with Rutledge in November. Yay, we're in production. Mm-hmm. And then I am also, and it does not have, very, it has very little to do with Fish, even though I do like Fish, but um in the Fish Bowl, P-H-I-S-H Bowl on Twitter. But right. it's more because Fish is my nickname. And when I earned my PhD, my family changed it to P-H-I-S-H. <laughs> <laughs> so there I know you-,
0: you go. All right. I know you're not in New Jersey right now, but we really do have to have like some sort of like New Jersey contingent of Dylan fans and like under some sort of. Like a book or something of just what it's like to be a New Jersey resident and be a Dylan fan. There's a lot of us. Uh, you know, <laughs> in Jersey, everything's legal. So as as you don't get caught. The adventures of New Jersey <laughs> Dylan fans or something like that. You, me, Rebecca we'll get a bunch of people involved. David so uh,
1: do is from New Jersey.
0: That's right. That's right. He is. Yeah. Oh, there you go. He'll- yeah,
1: <laughs> for sure. And I'm pray we will have to do a, a group. Um, I don't know, a group event when I'm going to be positive when Dylan plays at the beacon oh river.
0: man Oh, i can't wait oh i hope so i hope so I we hope just so too. he just ended the he just ended this leg of the tour everybody's like know, okay I yeah know. let's do it let's do it so right. well um erin thank you so thank much for for doing this i really appreciate it and it's just marvelous getting to talk to you at least finally here on the show
1: thank you so much rabbi i appreciate you having me on and have a good night
0: Absolutely. So, of course, everybody, you can find all the back episodes for now. We'll get to that in a moment over on fmpods.com. And you can find the show uh, on Twitter at Pod underscore Dylan. And like I mentioned on last week's show, I want to mention again that starting with the uh, Saturday, August 5th episode, uh, Pod Dylan on alternating weeks will be a going to a free preview And then to get the extended episode, the full episode, you will have to subscribe and be part of uh, Pod Dylan Plus. And of course you can do that over on Apple Podcasts or on fmpods.com. So, you know, like I said, for only $4.99 a month, you get all the bonus content, all the other great shows on the FM Podcast Network. Plus you get all four fully extended episodes of pod dylan plus all the bonus episodes i've been doing fmpods.com and subscribe and be part of pod dylan plus you will be uh, helping keeping the show to be going for a, uh, a long long time so uh, that's going to do it thanks everybody for listening and we will see you later bye ladies and gentlemen i'm gonna lose my band here right now
1: some of the finest players in the whole world on a guitar is larry Campbell. On the drums, none other than David Kemper.
0: On the other guitar is Charlie Sexton. The playing bass guitar tonight is Tony Don Yee.